morning we're in 1 Kings chapter 11. We'll be looking at the first eight verses. First Kings 11, beginning in verse 1, God's word says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these women in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Melech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountains east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifices to their gods. Let's pray. O Lord, we need you. We need you every hour. We need you to live the life that you call us to. And so would you stir in us a love for you? Would you give us ears to hear? And may this word be pleasing in your sight. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, Frank Dolan awoke. And since it was a Sunday, he planned to get some extra studying in. Yet he'd barely gotten topside on his ship when he heard a loud noise followed by the roar of many airplanes. He looked up to see numerous planes coming, most just a few feet above the water, dropping torpedoes. And as they were launching what he thought were dummy torpedoes, he thought, this is neat. This is really neat. Yet when one exploded against the battleship's side, he started thinking, some American pilot accidentally loaded a real torpedo. And yet then more torpedoes and more torpedoes kept striking and exploding the sides of ships. And then as the planes got closer, he saw the red ball of the Japanese on the planes, and he realized what was happening. It was the day that would live in infamy, the day in which the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. The U.S. had not expected an attack so close to them and so far from Japan, thus The Pearl Harbor facilities were left relatively undefended. Most of the Pacific fleet was moored close together, and hundreds of planes were stored close together. Now, it's not that everything had been smooth with the U.S. and Japan. In fact, there had been a lot of tension in our relationship. But such a near and dramatic attack caught us off guard. This morning, we come to the tragic end of Solomon's reign. And the first-time reader just can't believe it. Yet like the attack on Pearl Harbor, it's not as though everything had been just perfect in Solomon's life so far. And there's just a, such a dramatic turn that it leaves one flabbergasted. Rather, as we'll see, there are things that happened before this. 
But it makes us ask, how could Solomon have acted this way? We talk of the wisdom of Solomon. Where is the wisdom in this? And as we answer these questions, we will see that this story serves as a serious warning to consider our own lives and vigilantly fight sin. This morning, we'll see three things. First, that Solomon turns from the Lord. Then, Solomon's prior troubling roots. And then lastly, Solomon's turning from wisdom. But first, in these verses 1 through 8, we read of him turning from the Lord. And his life had begun and gone so well. In the middle, it was a little troubling, concerning. And then at the end, it completely comes off the rails. And as is often the case, it's not because Solomon woke up one day and said, you know what, I'm not going to serve God anymore. But rather, what he loved most led him to stop serving God. In this case, Solomon loved many foreign wives. It's interesting that in 1 Kings, the author only twice mentions what Solomon loved. At the beginning of his reign in chapter 3, it rejoicingly said that Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. It was a wonderful beginning that led to many years of peace, prosperity, and blessing to Solomon and the nations. Yet though the front bookend of his reign was the love of the Lord, sadly the ending bookend of his reign was 11.1, Solomon loved many foreign women. And it wasn't just any foreign women, it was the ones that Exodus 34 specifically told them not to marry from. Now we need to be clear the issue was not interracial marriage. Moses married Zipporah, who was from Midian. Ruth, a Moabite, married Boaz, who then became the grandparents of David, Solomon, even of Jesus. The issue is not interracial marriage. It's interfaith marriage. God had warned them in Deuteronomy 7, as it's talked about here, that if they marry with someone who but does not follow the Lord, they will lead them to not follow the Lord. And we still have the same command upon us. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now, 1 Corinthians 7 is clear. If you're a believer and you're already married, well, you should stay in your marriage if possible. You should seek to bless their life by living out a godly life. But for Solomon, he was already a believer, and he brought these many wives into his home. This broke the specific command to everyone, but also more specifically to the king. Deuteronomy 17 says, And the king shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away and yet notice what it says because in verse 4 verse 3 sorry into verse 2 says solomon clung to these wives in love i think the author picked that word purposefully he clung to them why do i say that well because genesis 2 24 verse you've probably heard therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast the word is cling the exact same word to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Or Deuteronomy 10.20 says, You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast or cling to him. And by his name you shall swear. Again, the same word. Joshua, as he's at the end of his 
reign as a leader, not a king. And he's exhorting the people of Israel. He says in Joshua 23, Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done this day. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God, for if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and make marriages with them, they shall be a snare and a trap for you until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And so this call over and over to cling to the Lord rather than clinging to spouses who don't love the Lord is abandoned by Solomon. And so he has this mind-blowing number, 700 wives, 300 concubines and we can make all kinds of speculations but it seems probably many of these were for his pleasure and some were maybe for political alliances and yet exactly what god had said would happen happens they turn his heart from the lord and he goes after Ashtoreth, the goddess of fertility he turns to milcom a god that they gave human sacrifices to and that's why they're called an abomination. And though many times we're not told in stories what God thinks of their actions, here it is very clear. Verse 6, we're told, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There's no guessing what God thinks of his actions. And so the verses in verses 7 and 8 give us more descriptions of these foreign gods he worshipped and that he did this because of his foreign wives but how could this happen how could solomon who loved the lord who had wisdom how could he have this happen to him well many things could be said but let's begin with where the passage says verses two through four over and over tell us that the heart of the issue is the issue of the heart in verse two god warned a foreign wives because Surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. At the end of verse 3, and his wives turned away his heart. Thus the resounding emphasis in verse 4, for when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Now we need to be clear, when the Bible talks about your heart, it's not the way we talk about it. Obviously, it's not talking about the physical organ, but even we will talk about your heart versus your head. And we'll talk about your heart like your emotions and your head like your thinking or your cognition. Well, the Bible combines all those. Your heart is the whole inner person. It includes your thoughts and your feelings, your emotions and the way you ration and think. And so here, the heart, the whole inner being of Solomon went after his foreign women. <coughs> Excuse me. Solomon's heart strayed, though, because he thought what was best in life was political power and personal pleasure. Those were good things, and yet they became the best things to Solomon. The gifts of God became to him what God should have been. In other words, 
This is a first commandment issue. You should have no other gods before me. But that still begs the question, how could Solomon's heart turn like this? And the answer to that question is, well, it's tied to his prior troubling roots. That's our second thing. We've mentioned this several times, but as we've gone through these various chapters, we've noticed what I've referred to as the rattling screw. It's what movies do when they show you something that's going to cause problems, and they keep going back to it every once in a while, foreshadowing. In chapter 3, when he married, married Pharaoh's daughter, we also noted that he was probably already married. So he was already beginning to move in this direction. In chapter 4, when it noted his 40,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen, we noted that Deuteronomy 17 warned the kings not to acquire many horses. In chapter 7, verse 1, Solomon is told that his building his own house took six more years than building the house for the Lord. And the author, again, didn't say, and this was wrong, but the way he wrote it hinted that the screw was jiggling. And then right after building the temple, we saw how he was not very fair in his economic dealings with Hiram, and he even gave away promised land to a foreign king. Then after that, he did good, but he didn't do the best because he didn't remove the people from the land. And lastly, there was the whole strange way he related to Pharaoh's daughter, his wife. He built her a house by the temple, but then when it was all finished, he said, oh, you're not holy enough to live here. Well, why would he marry her if she wasn't holy enough? Why would he build her a house there if he was then going to kick her out? And all of this was pointing to the fact that though Solomon's major turning point does come here in chapter 11, there were many things before that that led him to this. The first signs and symptoms were well before this. And that should really trouble us, should really awaken us, because oftentimes when people have major moral failures, when they go back and think about it, they realize it was many small turns, many small things that they allowed that led to it. A few years ago, the men read through John Owen's book, The Mortification of Sin. And in it, Owen warns that we have to be on our guard when we grow fine with the temptations of sin and sinful actions, that we don't try to put them to death. In fact, he warns we especially have to be cautious when even if we don't commit the sin, inside we find a delight as we reflect upon it. Sure, we maybe didn't let them have it, but inside we let them have it, and we loved it. Sure, maybe we didn't go out and go do that thing, but in our mind, we lingered over it and thought, that sure would be nice if I did. And this is the exact opposite of what we're told to think. We're told to think, well, it's okay if you're only looking and you're not touching. You know, I'm, it's only a thought. I didn't do it. And yet the Bible is warning us that what begins in the heart eventually leads to your actions. And the point of all this is that if we let the roots of our life grow by the streams of sin, we should not be surprised when the fruit of sin shows up in our life. We've seen this tragically borne out not only in the life of Solomon, but over this last year in the life of Ravi Zacharias. Tragically, some accusations were made about him a couple years ago, and people pushed him down to know those are 
people trying to attack his ministry. And yet, after he died, more accusations came out. And so his own ministry did an investigation, and they discovered a lot of really horrible, really wicked things that he had done. And we could say a lot of things about it, but what I want to note for now is, as people began to investigate this, they began to become more aware of other troubling patterns. Like, since the early 90s, he would often say he was a doctor and that he was a visiting scholar at Cambridge University. And the way he presented was he had earned this doctorate, and yet, as people looked into it, they said, well, actually, he didn't earn any doctorate. He had been given honorary doctorates. And it's not wrong, necessarily, with an honorary doctorate to say, I'm a doctor, but he presented as though I'm a doctor in theology when he was not. And he was confronted on this on times and would still leave up this uh, impression that he was an honorary doctor. Or he was a visiting scholar at Cambridge University when, in fact, he had gone to Ridley College, which is in the town of Cambridge, and was able, because of the joint relationship, to take a few classes there. It would be like going to Vernon College and, because of a relationship, taking a class at MSU and going, well, I'm going to graduate from MSU. Well, actually, you're not. You're going to Vernon College and you have a relationship. And the point is, when people would point this out, it was always no big deal, no issue. And the point there is, when we grow comfortable with one sin, we then can be comfortable with another one, and then another one, and then another one. And now my point is not that we're all going to turn into Solomon or Ravi Zacharias. They did wicked things, hopefully beyond the scope of what we would ever do per se. But the point is to say for both of them, there was patterns of sin that then led to deeper and more horrific sins. Thus, we have to be honest with ourselves in the real battle that is inside of us. I don't know what you all think about pastors but I've been here five years. I'd love to be here at least another 25 years. Things may change, but you know, my goal is to have a long pastorate. But there's a part of me that doesn't care one bit about 25 years. It cares about the next 25 seconds or the next 25 minutes. And am I going to have fun in this? And my heart, my desires are torn. Part of me goes, I want to be faithful to the day I die. And there's another part of me that goes, Will this make me happy in the next 25 minutes? And we are torn individuals that we have desires that are wanting to destroy us. And that's why John Owen writes, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Or the Apostle Paul says, Romans 8, 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live according to the Spirit, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So don't be fine with less sin. Well, I'm not sinning as much as I used to. Or don't be fine with replacements of sin if you then are doing another sin. You know, I began by telling of Pearl Harbor. And sometimes we understate the history or we overemphasize the surprise nature of Japan's attack as though we were all just living in peace and harmony and, whoa, they attacked us. We didn't know that was coming. Well, in fact, we were planning for an attack. We were already ramping up and had ramped up our building of ships. The difference was we were planning for an attack in the Pacific Islands closer to Australia. We thought, oh, Hawaii's too far away. They'll never come here. And yet, 
though they had concerns about Japan, though we had concerns about Japan, even the day of warning signs did not cause us to take action. For example, at 3.42 a.m., the USS Condor spied a periscope from a submarine not far from Pearl Harbor. Right before dawn, another ship also spied a submarine near Pearl Harbor. A U.S. destroyer approached a submarine at 6.45 a.m., and a little, that's a little bit of an hour before the attack, and they actually attacked it with depth charges and destroyed it. This was reported, and eh, no big deal. It wasn't just in the sea, though, that we had warnings. From the air at 7 a.m., a U.S. mobile radar station saw a large blip that was heading toward the island. And when they called the main island, they said, oh, it's probably just American B-17s. Don't worry about it. If the signs of danger by sea and by land had been taken seriously, the damage would have been less severe. And so the question for us is, what do we do with the blimps on our sin radar? When we have thoughts that should alarm us, do we brush it off? Do we delight in them? Or do we seek to put them to death? When we blow up in anger or have low-level irritability, do we get concerned? Do we just brush and say, oh, I'm just tired. Sorry, it's been a long day. Or do we get concerned about the indwelling sin? When you find that your mind can somehow twist almost any comment into a sexual joke, do you go, ooh, What's going on inside me? Or do you internally chuckle and just glad you didn't say it out loud? Worst of all, do we even say, I'm tired of seeing the blips on the radar. Blip, I'm not going to pay attention to that anymore. Are we okay with sin? And we can't be fine with the blips on the radar because they could be, they are warnings of a greater danger that will come if you don't fight them. So what about Solomon, though? He's the wisest man. How could he do something when he was so wise? Well, that leads to our last point, Solomon's turning from wisdom. We noted that Solomon's heart had turned, but he himself had said in Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Yet the issue of what ultimately keeps us holy and keeps us from sin is not wisdom it's worship what keeps us from sin what drives our actions is not only what we know it's what we love that's what drives us if i as a person love my body image if my body image is the most important thing then my emotions will be driven by my body image and when i look in the mirror and i see a body i like then i'm elated if i eat something that I feel like I shouldn't, then I'm crushed because I feel guilty because I'm going to destroy my body image. And what you love will drive your actions. It will drive that person fanatically to the gym. If I love control, then I become irritable and grouchy when the day doesn't go as I want. And I'm on cloud nine when everything goes just the way I'd planned my day to go. And I could go through various things, but the point is, what we love drives our actions, not only what we know. You can go to the body image lover and say, this is dumb. Why are you so upset that you ate an extra cookie? It's not a big deal. It's how many calories? One cookie. And yet because they love their body image, it crushes them. Or I can go to the person who's grouchy, me, 
and say, hey, why is, who cares that you lost 30 minutes because this happened? God's in control, but if I love my way, then it's not just what's up here, it's what's going on. And as the Bible talks about our heart, what we love, what we want, what we think we need for life to be perfect. And thus the issue was not Solomon's lack of wisdom or education, but rather his lack of love for God. That he didn't continue to fight for love for God. And again, the core issue for Solomon was, and for every person, is what truly has a hold on us? You know, what in your heart of hearts do you think, I have to have this to have a good life? And whatever that is, that will drive your actions. You know, this is interesting when you think about it because this really stands in stark contrast to what we're told. We're told, you know what we need to do to fix our society is more education. You know, the, the sexual immorality, if we just have more sexual education, that'll fix everything. Well, no one in the world has ever more education than Solomon. He was the smartest man who ever lived. Education does not fix our problems. Some people think, well, the problem is finances. They wouldn't act that way if they had enough money. Solomon was the wealthiest man, almost the wealthiest man who's ever lived. Our sin doesn't come because we're lacking resources. Or, well, environment. That's why people lead really horrible lives. If they had better homes or if they had better peer groups, then they wouldn't act so bad. Over and over, this passage mentions he was not true the way his father was. Now, yes, was their family have some issues? Yes, we can note those. But ultimately, he had a great family. And yet he still went astray. What is needed for a life that honors God is a heart that loves God. Not just the right amount of education, though education's good. Not the right amount of money, though money's good. Not the right peers, though that is good. What you need is a heart that loves God. And so we have to be alert to that in our own life. And even as we parent, as we counsel, Ted Tripp in his book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, says, we often pander to our children's desires and wishes. We teach them to find their soul's delight in going places and doing things. We attempt to satisfy their lust for excitement. We fill their young lives with distractions from God. We give them material things and take delight in their delight of possession. Then we hope that somewhere down the line, they'll come to see that a life worth living is found only in knowing and serving God. Many of you have probably seen trees that are growing at an angle. Well, once they're mature, it's not going to move. If you lean a tree a certain way, when it's mature, you can't then expect it to grow the other way. If you're always leading yourself, leading your children, leading those who love to find their greatest happiness in stuff, then not, they're not going to wake up one day and go, it's all about God. You know, I was never taught that, but it's all about God. And so we have to be careful with others and with ourselves. What are we saying life is about? So thus, let's end by examining how do we lead our hearts? How do we lead our children, our other loved ones, to have hearts that love God? Well, first, it has to begin with the honest confession that we have divided hearts. It's the struggle Paul talks about in Romans 7, that what I want to do I don't want to do. It's why Psalm 86, the psalmist says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. 
unite my heart to fear your name. Well, he would only be asking for God to unite his heart if he was admitting, sometimes I have a divided heart, part that wants to serve God and parts that wants to serve me. And so we need to call on God to stir us in love for him and that he would strangle in us our love for self. And in this, we need to be clear, I'm not talking about merely being moral. You don't need to be a Christian. You don't need the Spirit of God to be a moral person. The Pharisees were very moral people. What honors God is not just being moral, it's also why you're doing it. Are you living for God or are you living for yourself? Jesus had strong rebukes for the very moral Pharisees. As well, in that, we have to recognize it's not just about putting the bad sins to death. It's putting all sins to death. John Owen writes, He that changes pride for worldliness, sensuality for Pharisaism, vanity in himself to the contempt of others, let him not think that he has mortified the sin that he seems to have left. He has changed his master, but he is a servant still. So yes, maybe you're not doing those big sins like those horrible people, but any sin that remains is sin that dishonors God. And so what we need is the regeneration of the Spirit of Christ, not just moral transformation by our own power. And that's why we need to daily rely on the Spirit. As we read at the beginning of the service, John 15, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Us to fight sin, we need Christ and the Spirit of Christ in us. And in him, we have the resurrection power that defeated sin. Romans 8, 1 through 2 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The lie that the devil and your flesh want you to believe is this. I'm never going to defeat it. I've been battling the sin for so many years, and I've done it again. You know what? I quit. <laughs> Never going to win. It's, it's hopeless. There's no victory over this. And yet, we are just told the law of the Spirit of life has set you free. There is no sin that is greater than the Spirit of Christ. Thus, we can go forward with confidence. Not that we'll win every time. We'll lose some skirmishes. But we can have confidence that the victory has been achieved in Jesus Christ that the victory is secure, and so we go forth every day, even as we still struggle and sometimes still give in to sin, knowing that the victory is secure. You can overcome sin. But the second thing, after we recognize we need the Spirit of Christ, is we need to realize this is not some big secret. Let's just think, if you want to love something or love someone, what do you have to do? You have to spend time with them. You have to do things with them. If you want to get to know someone, you 
go on a date or you talk to them on the phone. If you want to grow in your love for God, you don't just sit back and poof, wait for the Spirit to zap you with love for God. You spend time with Him. You read His Word. You gather with other people that love Him and His Word. Earlier, we had read for us 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. And in it, Paul says, I've been preaching to others, but I have to watch out that I am not disqualified. And the intent talk, then talks about in his own life how he fights. And he uses all these athletic metaphors of how he keeps his body under self-control so that he might win the race, that he might have the prize. In other words, he disciplines himself. Like athletes, sometimes we need to say no to some things, even some good things, because we want to say yes to some better things, things that are far greater. And so is what you spend your free time on helping you run the race better to love Christ more? You may need to discipline yourself to say no to more television or books or other things that distract you. Now, I'm not saying you should only read Christian books. You should only pray and read your Bible. But we need to be honest. Are the things I'm doing a distraction or a help? Is what I'm doing leading my heart away from God or leading and nurturing it in my love for God? If you're an athlete, you put away good things because you want the best thing. We are in a race. So don't munch away on the junk food of most TV programming. Turn it off. Read a sermon. Listen listen to a sermon, even better. Read a book. Find something that causes you to delight in and know and enjoy Christ. That encourages you to deny yourself and serve others. That motivates you to love and forgive rather than to be bitter and hold grudges. And yet, this is very hard to do because we live in a culture that wants to indulge ourselves. We have a package of food in our pantry, and on the back of it it says, follow the 80-20 rule. 80% of the time be your healthiest self. 20% of the time indulge, hyphen, guilt-free. Maybe that's good advice for your physical body, I don't know. But I think many people take that same advice for their spiritual life. I'm going to be good most of the time. I'm going to do all this, and so, you know what? I'm kind of owed the 20%. I'm kind of owed the ability to sin in this way because I'm really good 80% of the time. I'm not some wild partying single, so it's okay if I watch these videos. Uh, you know, I sacrifice so much for my family, my job, my spouse. It's okay if I hold a grudge on this one issue. I've done so much. I, I'm owed this. And yet it's a dangerous spiritual lie to ever think, I've done this over here, so that gives me an excuse over here. In all of our life, our spiritual life, there's no 80-20 rule. It's 100% love for the Lord. So how do we avoid the bookends of our life being, they loved God, and then as they grew old, their heart loved whatever it may be. Well, first we said we got to be honest with ourselves. 
and realize that there is a real battle going on for our hearts and that we need to cry out daily depending on the Spirit for help. We should never assume sinful temptations or desires are just one day going to magically disappear. You know what? I used to struggle with that and then it just ended. No, you have to fight the sin that is within you. Nor should we resolve, think, well, you know what? If I just try harder, if I just beat myself up more, because I, I, if I really make myself feel guilty this time, then I won't do it again. Well, I promise you the guilt will go away. The moral resolution will cease. Only a love for Christ will drive out the sin. But not only do we cry out to the Spirit, we also need to put in place the spiritual discipline that nurture our heart, that provide the opportunity for the Spirit to come in and stir us. Disciplines of being in the Word, of being honest and confessing with sin, friends when we do sin, of singing, of being with God's people, and doing other things that cause us to stay in love with Christ. And all this, though, to avoid a personal day that will be remembered in infamy, you must take seriously the blips on your radar. Your flesh wants you to just brush them aside. You know, small, that's, you know, I know Christians who do worse than this. It's no big deal. It's not concerning to me. But your conscience and the spirit are warning. Danger looms. I'm going to wrap up by telling of a recent conversation with a friend who's been in various Christian ministries, and he was recounting to me some of the things that have happened to him. It was rather discouraging because in various places, he's been treated rather poorly by people who are very prominent Christians. And as we were talking, we both thought of this same article, same lecture that C.S. Lewis gave. You may have heard of it before. It's called The Inner Ring. And he's giving this lecture to college students as they are entering college. And he's warning them of a major danger that's going to face them. And that is the great danger of living for the approval of a certain group of people. It's what we were talking about earlier. Whatever your heart loves the most, that will lead to your actions. And so Lewis said to them, to nine out of ten of you, the choice which could lead to scoundrelism will come. But when it does come, it will come in no very dramatic colors. Obviously bad men, or obviously threatening or bribing, will almost certainly not appear. It will be over a drink or a cup of coffee, disguised as a triviality and sandwiched between two jokes from the lips of a man or woman whom you have recently been getting to know rather better and whom you hope to know better still, just at that moment when you're most anxious not to appear crude or naive or a prig, the hint will come. It will be the hint of something which we, and at the word we, we try not to blush for pleasure, something we always do. And you will be drawn, if you're drawn in, not by the desire for gain or ease, but simply because at that moment when the cup was so near your lips, you cannot bear to be thrust back again into the cold outer world. It would be so terrible to see the other man's face, that genial, confidential, delightfully sophisticated face, turn suddenly cold and contemptuous. To know that you've been tried for the inner ring and rejected. But then if you're drawn in, Next week, it'll be something a little farther from the rules. And next year, something further still, but all in the jolliest, friendliest spirit. And Lewis this then ends that 
if you get the approval, it may lead to a good life, humanly speaking, of wealth and everything, or it might end in a moral disaster. But either way, his point is, you've become a scoundrel, or we might say, a sinner. What he's showing is that our heart always leads our affections. And so the solution for having a heart for God also means we need to recognize that he is better than everything else. His smile is better than the smile of any group. Even if to have his smile, you'll have to have all of their ridicule and scorn. His acceptance is better than the acceptance of any friends and family, even if to be estranged from them is the only way you can be accepted by him. Any being besides God will return to dust, but the beautiful loving, just, and eternal God of the universe extends a welcome to you. So may we stir our hearts to love him. Let's pray. O Lord, we come and do ask, would you stir us? Would you unite our hearts to fear your name? Lord, any sin in us, may we confess and renounce. May we not dabble with it or play with it, but may we flee that we might be safe, find our joy in you. Lord, even now, work in and through us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.